G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. Really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return, but we're incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts, Acast. Um, it's good. There's Google now do it, don't they? I think. Anyway, so uh, we're incredibly grateful if you could um, uh, leave us a review. A five-star review would be great. We'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to leave us uh, a review. So uh, joining Brian and myself in the studio, we're back in the studio. How very exciting is Ashley Hartley, one of our staff clinicians in internal medicine here at the RBC at the QMH. Um, thank you, Ashley, for joining. Excellent. Yeah, I love being here. Thanks but, for having me. Oh, our, our pleasure. Um, we thought we were going to talk uh, about um, uh, gallbladder mucosils, but maybe gallbladder disease and maybe sure. a, 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 a bit of a bit of all sorts of stuff around that. So, uh, um, so maybe, uh, actually, if you wouldn't mind, sort of start by saying about what's, what we're talking about here. What is a gallbladder mucosil? Yeah, so gallbladder mucosils is often something that we've probably recognized more recently um, in our cases, especially in dogs, sometimes in cats that we find, um, and animals that maybe present with nonspecific signs and of abdominal pain, maybe some vomiting, and, and during their workup we have found that they have um, a gallbladder mucosil or a kiwi-looking um, item um, in, their, in their gallbladder, and so um, kind of a classic sign of a mucosil. And so I think for the last couple years, we've done a lot of research about things that we have found with gallbladder mucosils, and I think it's an interesting topic that now we're becoming more aware of, and I thought it would be good to chat about today. So, yeah. I suppose the, the use of uh, imaging, particularly in the emergency room, has made people have a look for a certain amount of things, so maybe it is being more recognized as a, as a cause of acute uh, abdominal pain. Is, is that how they all present? Yeah, so some of them some of them are non-specific signs where maybe they're three to five day history of maybe some vomiting, maybe some lethargy, anorexia are usually the chief complaints. Maybe the owners have noticed abdominal pain or, or maybe they're even yellow, so they're ictric and the owners notice that and that, that's kind of why they present. And, and clinically, when we start to see them on physical exam, we start to pick up those similar signs or kind of localizing the pain to the cranial abdominal and then, you know, kind of instigating, hey, let's, we've got to look in that cranial abdomen with ultrasound. You know, some people have asked, well, is it is it that we're just becoming better about diagnosing it? Um, it's hard to know because I think our techniques of actually looking for it by ultrasound have gotten better over the years. So um, I think that people probably would have noticed it many, many years ago. Um, so is it becoming in- increasingly an issue or are we just all more aware about it and looking for it now? We're just more aware of looking, looking for the disease, so. So what, what does it actually look like a kiwi fruit? Yeah, so it it looks like a kiwi fruit, um, like if you cut a kiwi in half, where it's kind of this stellate pattern, and that is typically because um, in gallbladder mucosils there's this mucinous hyperplasia. So there's thickening of the gallbladder wall and kind of little um, fronds that have come up with villi, and there's this mucus that has um, kind of uh, accumulated, and sometimes it becomes insipated, meaning almost like concrete, and as it progresses or stages of it where it's just kind of just on the edges and then becomes this full kind of full mature kiwi fruit Um, and why that's a problem is that well the gallbladder stores bile um, and if it's now filled with mucus um, it can't actually do its function Um, and that mucinous hyperplasia and concreteness of of material that's in there can then also block the the ducts that lead for bile flow and then you get obstructions and that's where the pain comes from I think in, in animals um, and also if it 
becomes so thickened and firm, it actually can cause necrosis of the wall and then rupture. And I think that's where that becomes, you know, an emergency um, in that case. And so I think there's now a spectrum we've found where we find early signs of the kiwi fruit to the full mature to ruptured, requiring emer emergency um, surgery per se um, in those cases. So I think there's a spectrum that we've now identified now that we're much more aware of the disease. Is it an inflammatory disease or it's a disease that we don't like? Is it idiopathic in nature or could it be from multiple different? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's, so I, now that we have found it, I think we've invested a lot into actually finding what are some correlations or do they have comorbidities in these animals? Um, when we actually look at the the mucoceles on histopath, um, a lot of them do have just mucin in them, um, but we've also correlated now, either there was a study out of Colorado with um, collaborators here that actually looked at are there signs of inflammation, and around two-thirds of the cases there did have signs of lymphocytes, neutrophils, so there is some coleocystitis in two-thirds of those cases. Other reports have said about a third. So about a third to two-thirds do have inflammation, not just this mucinous hyperplasia. I think one thing that we haven't talked about just yet is that also with that inflammation, yes, there's inflammatory cells, but is there also an evidence of bacterial contamination or bacteria that are also in there causing that inflammation? And that has been something that um, we've been more interested in in the sense that are bacteria causing it? Or are they just present there? Um, and so oftentimes when we're taking them out, we're culturing them as well to look and see, um, you know, are they culturing bacteria? Um, and about... I would say there's a huge range. Um, there's anywhere from like six to 67% of cases which will culture positive. So it's a huge range. I'd probably imagine that about 10 to 20% actually do culture by aerobic or anaerobic. There was a recent study that um, showed that actually if they kind of upped the game of looking for bacteria by doing fish analysis, that um, they could detect more bacteria that way. So um, that study had two thirds of um, of cases actually that they could detect bacteria within the gallbladder wall, but the cultures actually wouldn't grow anything. So it's kind of what are the role of the bacteria in these mucoceles? We don't know just yet. Because so. the gallbladder should, <clears throat> sorry, the gallbladder should itself be a sterile area, right? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, that's what we've always thought. Um, and I think now we've come to the conclusion that there are some times that we've found bacteria present in normal dogs. Um, and I guess detecting bacteria is, is the question. Is it by culture? Um, most of them don't culture, but we can also find potentially remnants of bacteria in there. Um, so at the turn of the century, um, they had done some studies where dogs um, were recently euthanized, um, collected the gallbladder almost immediately, and could still culture bacteria out of there. Is there some reflux from the GI tract? Maybe, um, incidentally, but um, most of the time we do think it's sterile, but then we do find bacteria, so it's kind of hard to know. Are we just finding remnants of them, or are they really alive? Um, and are these organisms all sort of enteric organisms, or are they more organisms that could be from... The, the liver or portal circulation. Yeah, so where are they coming from? I think the in the in many of the hypotheses are from potentially actually reflux from the GI tract. So the sphincter of Odi is that, um, that gateway between our um, common bile duct and the duodenum. And so is there potentially reflux of those um, GI bacteria into the gallbladder, into those ducts, maybe even to the liver, that's causing this um, cholangio, uh, cholangitis, essentially. 
There are, um, and I think that is supported um, by some cases in which we do find bacteria within the mucus itself, but those fish probes have identified it there. Other theories are also that it potentially could be from the bloodstream. Um, in the case, particularly maybe more so in cats, where we start to see that actually um, bacteria are within, particularly in the liver, we see them near sinusoids, so more towards the vasculature. So the source may actually be from like bacteremia or septicemia, and that's where they're actually being translocated versus the um, the bile ducts and, and the bile system. So I, I think it's twofold. Um, I don't think we've figured it out exactly, but I think those are the two reigning hypotheses right now. So if you if you identify a, uh, a gallbladder mucosal or you think that that is there, what, what do you do? <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's always it's always hard um, to to navigate at some level. There are some clues that might make you um, act more urgently, um, and so a lot of times uh, gallbladder mucoseals can be found on ultrasound um, because we're suspicious of gallbladder disease because of how the animal presents or their blood work, um, and so we're looking for hallmarks on there that make us worried that now this mucoseal is becoming emergent. And so some of those key things are is that if we find free abdominal fluid. Um, that might suggest that there's bile rupture, which is our biggest concern. Um, typically that fluid may be more prevalent around the gallbladder, but not always. Sometimes it can just be anywhere in the abdomen, um, if, as you can imagine. But bile peritonitis is quite serious. Other things that we kind of challenge our imagers to look for is, you know, is there a continuous layer to the to the gallbladder wall? But that's really hard to tell and a very hard task to ask them to do. Um, so there can be other signs where um, there's edema in the gallbladder wall or, or maybe they can notice that there's um, pericholecystic fat um, that's bright, so steatitis that's around in that region. Those are all some, some clues for us that potentially there has already been rupture. Um, and so if there is rupture, you know, if we can sample any of that fluid, measuring um, bilirubin in that fluid versus in the plasma or the serum, that's great to kind of help confirm that. In some cases, it's not that clear cut. Um, and so if we saw that there was a rupture, emergency surgery is typically the, the course to go. Um, you've got to go in there and, and, and address the situation. There have been cases in which um, imagers couldn't find the, the gallbladder, and actually there's a gallbladder mucosal that's just floating in the abdomen. So um, that is possible. It's kind of scary to think about. Um, but getting going in there and exploring and, and removing what you can and, and patching up. And, and surgically, that is removal of the gallbladder. There's not really a way of cutting into the gallbladder and then closing it back up, because usually there is necrosis of the gallbladder wall. Um, so, so rupture can it sounds so clear-cut based on those those hallmarks but i have seen where you know you're still suspicious the dog has abdominal pain maybe there's not free fluid um, there's peripancreatic fat that's inflamed and you sent them to surgery not fully convinced and and on the surgical table that they have been ruptured so it is a very hard delicate balance of of when to send them when not to um, in cases where the gallbladder looks quiet and maybe it's more incidentally fine, you, you start to see the early kiwi formation, there are some cases in which we consider medical management first. Um, and so we discuss those with the owner, um, especially in a clinically well dog that just, you know, maybe you're looking for a ur urinary tract infection, you come across a gallbladder mucosal. We talk about different ways to actually support the gallbladder as much as we can and, and upping our monitoring in those animals. So in those cases, I typically reach for 
coleuretics, so things that will encourage bile flow, um, using hydrophilic bile salts, so encouraging the use of ursodiol or UDCA to kind of encourage bile flow to get that flowing, um, if you will. Um, and then using um, antioxidants like SAMe to kind of in increase our glutathione um, production um, from the liver to kind of help support with inflammation to, to look at that. And then usually in those kids, um, patients, um, we do recommend returning, you know, within the next month, three to four weeks to kind of look at the look at the gallbladder again by ultrasound and say, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Are we progressing? Unfortunately, it's really hard to know when they're going to progress. Um, and so that is a discussion with the owners about what we want them watching at home for. What are they looking for, kind of abdominal pain, any changes in, in um, their appetite? Because those signs, again, the clinical signs are kind of subtle um, initially. Um, and that might bring that animal in sooner rather than later. Um, we do know that when, um, if an animal has a gallbladder mucosal and they have bile rupture and bile peritonitis, that um, sending them to surgery is a, is a, I guess, more risky in the sense that um, in those animals, they're three times more likely to, to die than those animals that we go in kind of prophylactively and do a cholecystectomy um, when they're stable and so forth, which kind of makes sense. I mean, obviously, if you're ill and have bowel peritonitis, your, your um, mortality is, is higher than if, um, if you were kind of an excellent candidate or a better candidate going in anesthetically. So that kind of makes sense. I don't know if that helps. Yeah. <clears throat> no, absolutely. They, they, they kind of do the same. Or, or is it, um, in what you've uh, read and, uh, and understand, is it a similar disease in what they're having in people? Because I know, like, in people, if they have flare-ups of gallbladder disease, very common but they don't surgery is not a thing that is happens right there and then or they maybe they stent it and i there, there are some papers about trying to stent yeah bladders in, in dogs and there's that yeah so usually so there is there is a bit about stenting um and i think that comes to in cases i haven't seen it in particularly in gallbladder mucosal cases um but there is some talk in in the sense of cholangitis or um, coleolis or something like that where we can kind of increase that flow i think the hard thing is is that um you know, if the obstruction has already happened and it can happen at any point and it's in the gallbladder um, proper, if you will, then it may be hard to mitigate that with a stent. Um, oftentimes when they do get a cholecystectomy, the stent is placed to kind of help with that common bile duct and the inflammation that's in there. So, so yeah, so some of it. And in people, they do it laparoscopic cholecystectomies, and sometimes they're done prophylactically in the sense of if they're kind of recurrence, they will go in and take them out, but they do have the luxury, quote-unquote, of doing it laparoscopically. Um, I think many surgeons would be keen to do it. I think it's technically probably very, very hard since of our patients are so much smaller. So when you started uh, the conversation about like a, quite a big range of uh, those animals that might have something, uh, might have bacteria that, that, is, that, mm -hmm. that is growing. So when you were supporting these patients, do you ever think about adding antibiotics to that or how would you make a decision about whether to do that or not. Yeah, so, um, you know, and so I said mentioned that probably in 20 to 30% of cases can we culture a bacterium. Um, more studies about this fish analysis have shown that maybe there actually are more bacteria in about two-thirds of cases than we appreciate. Are they alive? Are they dead? Are they contaminants? Who knows? Um, but yeah, a lot of them are actually started on antibiotics once they're in surgery, um, especially if they're ruptured, um, and we take culture samples of the gallbladder um, at the time of removal, right, to kind of make our choices a little bit easier. 
Now, in those cases that are incidentally found, it's a little bit harder to know um, because ideally you would sample the gallbladder, right? But if we've got a gallbladder mucosal, I think any of us would be very nervous about doing that and compromising the gallbladder wall. It's something routinely we do in maybe normal gallbladder disease to sample, but in mucosales is kind of my no-go territory. Um, so unfortunately we can't sample to make that decision. And so in some cases I start, if it's a non-clinical asymptomatic dog, then oftentimes we're starting with those choleretics and antioxidants to help support that. And if we're seeing either progression and the dog is not clinical, potentially we may use antibiotics. Now again, that's personal personal use um, and also being conscious of our antibi antibiotic stewardship, um, thinking about that. So it is, there's no good answer. I think if you are at surgery and you're culturing, they are definitely starting on them um, perioptively. So. And, and um, what bacteria do you tend to culture yeah. for these um, for these bugs? bugs yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of them are GI, GI bacteria that we think of, E. coli, um, Enterococcus. You'll get Staphylococcus and Streptococcus. You'll get Clostridium, um, Klebsiella as well. So kind of a, um, a, a normal cohort, I guess, of GI bacteria. that we, So we can make assumptions about what we I would imagine would be in there if we are making empirical choices. Um, and usually it's response to treatment. You know, it's hard in an asymptomatic animal to kind of follow them. What are you monitoring over time? Is it ultrasound changes? Is it blood work? So forth. Yeah. And <clears throat> do we know that sort of percentage-wise of uh, all gallbladder diseases, the, the amount that might have uh, a bacterial sort of component, or is that still that sort of 10 20 20 percent yeah so when we when we kind of come back to regular cases of cholangitis mm. um i imagine so most of the cultures again the range is is quite variable depending on the study but probably 20 to 30 percent will grow something is that the culprit in it um i think that's always the unknown part of it um so we do know a subset is but then there's a subset that don't that still have inflammation and so forth yeah and I know you, you would never be uh, like me, sort of focused on one sort of area or, or anything like that. So, so are there other things that you are kind of interested in these patients that present with gallbladder disease, or anything else that you'd have on your uh, spider sense or, or whatever medicine sense? That's probably medicine be sense. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so oftentimes, you know, we're always, you know, yes, we find a gallbladder mucosal and we say, well, what what could be the cause of it? What are correlates to it? Um, and so, in the in the literature, and a lot of our colleagues have investigated these previously so again we've kind of touched on bacteria are they contributing to that and investigating that um, others have looked at um, or correlated um, hyperdrenocorticism with it um, so about uh, an odds rate risk of about two times more likely to have hyperdrenocorticism either diagnosed or being under treatment for it um, the thought behind that is that steroids um, in your body can also contribute to a hydrophobic um, bile salt formation. So could that potentially make bile flow more um, slow or thickened? Um, and so there may be more uh, more propensity for stasis potentially. So that's the theory behind that. Um, so besides hyperdrenocorticism, um, hypothyroidism. Um, so a lot of these um, dogs have been treated or um, have low T4, um, high TSHs. Um, it's hard to interpret when they're obviously in the clinical state, but they have a history of it. And the idea behind that is that um, thyroxin um, itself can um, it interacts with uh, your your sphincter of OD, again, that gateway between the, the common bile duct and the duodenum. So if you lack that or have less of it, do you have maybe less tone and that could provide communication and um, refluxed um, inflammation that could happen um, more likely. 
Um, other other um, theories and um, work has also been done with gut gut mobility motility um, or excuse me gallbladder motility so contraction rates of the gallbladder we do have some sense of how often your gallbladder should contract in response to a meal for example like fat in your diet um, also when we think about hormones that you have in your body motilin is one that does that that controls um, gallbladder contraction and so in those animals are they deficient of motilin um, or do they have problems with innervation in that region potentially there are ways to assess that through um, ultrasound analysis there's some, some really nice studies that people have done looking at giving erythromycin a motilin um, antagonist to, to try to to get um, to see gallbladder contraction and see are they actually deficient in animals that have mucoceles versus not or in other gallbladder diseases. So interesting things that um, people have looked at there. Um, and then there's, um, there is some correlation with breed um, disposition. So um, there's a lot of studies out there about, uh, especially in the UK, we know about border terriers and gallbladder mucoceles. That's one thing that's been quite nice to see. Um, in one referral practice, it was 85 times more likely to be a border terrier than another breed. Um, really profound study there. But uh, the other classic kind of um, culprits are, you know, Cocker Spaniels, um, Chihuahuas, Pomeranians was in a large and multiple different studies. Um, and then Shetland sheepdogs, um, and actually Shetland sheepdogs that have received imidacloprid actually had a nine times increased risk. Um, so uh, a flea preventative, essentially, in, on a Shetland sheepdog and those animals. So it was very tightly correlated in, in that breed. Um, and so I think a lot of those things kind of correlate with maybe potentially risk factors, but none of them are 100%. So a lot of them can be contributing, again, hypothesis. But unfortunately, we, we need to look into it to kind of tie those a little bit better to be able to guide our owners about what is your animal's specific risk factor or the propensity of them to, to, to do well um, in their mucosal formation. Can they, you know, is it better to manage them medically, surgically, so forth, so... Yeah. And, and can we maybe touch on sort of what you might recommend with like diet as as well for, yeah. for these for these guys? Is there anything you would avoid? And 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 then we spoke when the mics were closed about <laughs> has anyone looked into is diet a you know predisposing factor? Yeah, there's a general recommendation to to consider low fat diets. Again, that is um, as increased fat in our diet slows down your GI. Um, motility, if you will, just based on um, how it works. And so um, low-fat diets are recommended, but there isn't, to my knowledge, um, a study uh, looking at low-fat diets and your propensity to develop gallbladder mucoceles versus um, or cholangitis um, in that way. So we don't have a ton of, but that's a recommendation, yeah. And I know you're, you're very interested in infectious diseases as, <laughs> as well. Is there, is there any, uh, any weird and wonderful infectious diseases that can um, uh, affect the gallbladder? Oh, I mean, there's definitely interesting, like, parasites and um, bacteria that are obviously in there, but um, not necessarily something that's been correlated to gallbladder mucoceles per se, but yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Actually, do you, do you think, uh, is there anything else we, we missed talking about uh, gallbladder mucoceles or anything else that you think we should, should, you should add? Um, no, just just that uh, I was also thinking about hyperlipidemia and actually like miniature schnauzers are also propensity, another factor that may be correlated to gallbladder mucoceles. But um, have, have they linked that then? Yeah, they... so it, it correlated to that the fact that they that might be also um, looking at leptin and lipids and so forth that they're correlated to. So anyway, just a last minute <laughs> addition there. Um, but I think when it comes to gallbladder mucoceles, I think we're we're starting to see them 
more often is that because we're increased awareness or we're increased sensitivity of looking at it. I think that we, it's critical to know when, when to, to really recognize that they're an emergent condition that needs prompt surgical intervention versus, you know, talking about medical management and what that looks like and, and what the implications for the owner long term are. I think recognizing what factors that may be um, contributing to um, either hyperadrenocorticism or hypothyroidism. Are they complicating? Are they just uh, incidental finding along with it? Um, but considering how we're addressing those alongside. Um, and then considering if we are doing medical management using, you know, Ursodial or um, SAMe, um, considering a low-fat diet, plus or minus antibiotics, and increasing our monitoring if we're doing medical management. Just, just to um, finish off, thanks for that. That's a very great summary. I was just wondering, what would you say to someone who may be uh, less experienced or doesn't have necessarily the, the structure around to help, and they've identified something that they think is a mucosal? Like, what, what do they do? Yeah. Like, do they, should they call up their like referring vets and uh, or their, their you know referring practices or practices and say, what do I do in this situation? Or do they like treat with? Sammy, if they can't identify any free fluid and maybe the animal's not that painful or give them manual GCA. like it I know these are all like gray areas yeah. and, and you obviously want to see the see the patients or anybody like would but but uh, there's always these sort of gray areas aren't there and there's we, always a, a spectrum because it, it's hard when you have an asymptomatic dog in front of you that you know you you see those changes on um, blood work that might indicate um, that you've got gallbladder disease and then you find a gallbladder mucosal and is it how clinical are they are we starting kind of this prophylaxis with ursodial sami discussing low-fat diet you know um, considering but in those cases that's when i'm chatting with the owners about options there of saying you know in some cases you know this might be enough there are cases out there that this cures gallbladder mucoseals it's rare but it's possible but also just bringing it up as a discussion point that potentially down the road that this animal might be presenting emergently and that potentially considering referral or removal of the gallbladder prophylactically is not impossible. Some people have called them like ticking time bombs that at some point they may progress and it may be a year, two years from now, may never, it might be very silent. Or is it something that next month where they will present? It's hard to know. None of us have a glass, a glass ball. So um, I think having that open discussion with the owners initially and saying, here are some options that we have. Um, uh, considering if they're asymptomatic, yes, absolutely, let's, we can try these things, but warning, hey, these are down the road. Um, in some cases, owners have said, you know, I don't want to do monitoring, do I just remove the gallbladder? Um, and that's possible. Um, removing the gallbladder is not a small feat, um, takes a specialist, um, I would argue, to, to remove, um, and is not a, you, you really need a 24-hour facility, I think, post-op to kind of watch because they can have a rockier recovery than, say, a traditional laparotomy. Um, so having that consideration um, beforehand would be great. Yeah. And and really sort of finally, uh, with, with cats, yeah. so, so do we kind of treat them in the same similar way i know like cats not dogs but, but you know like uh <laughs> is it a similar disease or have like worse outcomes if they have surgery so gallbladder mucosils have been described in cats but not as much as in dogs so i think our our knowledge base is much smaller than we do in dogs i'd probably follow a similar pattern of of medication wise just because of the medicine point of view thinking about the physiology about how to address it um you know, removing it if you need to um, in those cases. But I don't think we just know enough yet. 
because to say if they're going to do better or worse or the same than um, than dogs. So probably if you think you identified something like that, then that is the time to uh, call up a local referral practice yeah. and say, uh, "Can I have some help with this?" Because yeah. it's not a not a not a common thing, right? Right. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Ashley. It's been uh, it's been uh, great to have you here in the in the studio, and uh, thank you for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. So if you leave us a review, five star review, uh, any other stars, just give them to another uh, podcast provider. Thanks. So um, so yeah, don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or any anybody else. We're we're, we're open to have anybody listen to our podcast we'll play some show notes in the RVC pages so just type in RVC clinical podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree so if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast please get in touch so you can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield until next time bye bye